Welcome to the 173rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Just about everyone involved in Midwestern agriculture agrees that cover crops are a good idea. Growing rye, radish, and other plants on corn and soybean fields that are normally bare or even plowed up from fall until spring reduces erosion, soaks up extra nutrients, and builds long-term soil health, making those acres more drought-resistant and biologically resilient in general. Unfortunately, in most of the American Corn Belt, cover crops are not a common practice. Narrow planting windows, lack of proper seed and equipment, and more than a few misperceptions about this practice have kept the majority of farmers from making cover cropping a regular part of their operations. However, one state has become an exception when it comes to cover cropping. In just a few short years, Indiana has gotten almost 1 million acres of cropland planted to cover crops. On a percentage basis, no other Corn Belt state is even close to having that much land protected with live plants during the long brown months that come between the growing seasons. Those plants are not only covering the surface of fields, but also sending roots into the soil profile, where they feed microbes and break up compaction. It turns out Indiana's success with cover crops is no accident. During the past few years, farmers, conservation agencies, scientists, and agribusiness firms in the Hoosier State have been working together to make cover cropping and other soil health measures a consistent part of the landscape. Called the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, this effort has become a national model for utilizing public and private resources to not only get farmers started with cover crops, but also to provide them the long-term support needed so this practice becomes a permanent part of their operations. I recently spent a few days in Indiana attending field days and talking to farmers, soil scientists, and natural resource professionals about the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. In the first of three podcasts on the initiative, I talked to Barry Fisher, a soil health specialist with the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Fisher, who helped launch the initiative, talked to me about how it uses a combination of farmer-to-farmer education, cutting-edge agronomic science, and support from agribusiness firms to make cover cropping part of a wider soil health systems approach. Fisher emphasized that the key to successfully spreading the cover crop gospel is using farmer educators who can not only talk conservation, but dollars and cents as well. We wanted the, the information to be science-based, but we, we also knew that it had to be delivered in a format that is practical and logical for farmers to adopt. The best place to get that was from some of the top conservation farmers that we had in the state. So we went on a recruitment mission to some of those top conservation farmers that had really good soil health, good soil management practices, and um, then also selected uh, farmers that had good economics data, good record keeping, and good communication skills. And uh, so if we're going to get farmers talking to other farmers, we, we actually gave them and offered them some training and presentation skills too so uh so we've got now a cadre of farmers you know across the state that uh broad reaching in their enterprises and their crop rotations and uh experience but the result has been just fantastic the way they've they're res- received at at different workshops and uh we help them with uh tran- you know get, get them uh their travel and, and some of those things and, and reimburse them for some of their time but but at the same time they're very they're the kind of people that that want to share and and uh, that's really important too yeah how many farmers are, are kind of doing this now well we've got 12 farmers that are uh, 
at their farm, we're also collecting data, collecting economics data, collecting soil health data, collecting uh, nutrient and yield data. And so we're building a big data set from 12 farms. Beyond that, we we have as, as many as 10 additional affiliates that, that work with us on helping exchange technologies and education and those kinds of things. So, And then we also have some of the uni- Purdue University farms and some, some actually local county and, and soil and water conservation district farms that are part of the overall hub concept within our conservation cropping system initiative. So one thing that, that uh, really struck me, and, and I think it was on display here at this field day here at, at Moody Farms, was this whole idea of a team approach in that we had, well, we had Ray Wild come in and speak about soil health and the experience in the Chesapeake Bay. But then we had, we went out to the field itself and we had somebody who is a cover crop seed dealer we had somebody who modifies equipment and sells equipment and, and offers services to plant cover crops and and kind of that whole package deal. I, I think that sounds like that's an important part of this as well. Anytime if a farmer's considering making this major shift to their operation, uh, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of risk involved in making major changes to your operation. So we have to bring all the players together that can make that successful. And certainly it's going to be more than just agency people. It's going to be more than just extension people. We've got to have the retail industry. We've got to have the equipment people, the seed industry, and then, of course, the farmers and, and researchers also. So we, we, put, we try to combine all of those partners and players at each of these workshops. And then we also, that's a, it's a constant communication between all of us so that, so that we keep the technology and the science and, and the, the economics and all the information going forward. So we want, the, we want everything to be cutting-edge uh, technology that we're delivering. I think one message that you kind of have been going, getting across and uh, the farmers have as well when they speak is that we've maybe known a long time that cover crops can produce all these environmental benefits, but now is an exciting time because we're starting to see the economic benefits on the farm. That it, and, and so it's coming at probably really a fortuitous time in that there may be some pressure down the road. Uh, and, that, you know, I know one of the arguments you made yesterday at a presentation was, hey, look, we can head off maybe this regulation if we're really proactive on this. Well, that's certainly true. And the, the beauty is that most of the things that help us benefit the environmental side of things, we can also see economic benefits. We, it was said today that, you know, we're not very efficient in utilizing sunlight, that free sunlight and free resources, the free CO2 that's out there that plants can use to put into the soil. So in our normal 80 to 90 day window, when our normal cropping system is, is using those and, and capturing sunlight and producing carbon in, in, into the soil, and that's a very short period of time considering we've got a whole season and a lot of extra free sunlight. So cover crops are doing so much more for us to help capture that sunlight, capture that CO2, put that CO2 in the form of carbon and organic matter back in the soil, feed the biology in the soil during those off months. It gives us an ability to uh, add diversity to our not very diverse cropping system. So uh, it gives us that ability where we, we really couldn't get that integrated into the system before. Uh, even in a no-till system, uh, we've reduced the disturbance. We can improve you know, erosion control and we can do a lot of beneficial things. But when we integrate a cover crop, a diverse mix in there, it's amazing how that system takes off. And it sounds like another important message is uh, it's not just a matter of adapting this one 
piece, the, the cover cropping, that it has to be part of a system approach. Absolutely, and uh, that's a big part of our conservation cropping system initiative. That's why we called it such a long name, I guess. Uh, you know, cover crops are kind of the new thing that people are looking at a lot, but really you need to prescribe the right cover crop that matches your crop rotation, and, and you've got to integrate that into if you're going to be reducing tillage and you're using a no-till system, it has to complement the other parts of the system. And so then you probably have to ultimately adapt your nutrient management too to, once again, complement your no-till system, complement the fact that you're using cover crops and maybe a different crop rotation. So uh, the whole of the system far exceeds the sum of its parts. And it all has to be managed together as a system. And when we get that done, and that's why it takes all of these players to help us with the technology and get get the system in place, when you get that in place, the economic returns and the resilience of that cropping system just explodes. I think the, the figure is being thrown around here that maybe around a million acres are cover crop now. Or can, can you go through a little bit some of the results you've seen and how, over how many years have we seen that growth? A huge explosion here lately. We, we ran our fall transect. We, we've always done a tillage transect in Indiana to, to keep track of where tillage trends are going. We added a fall transect to, to the same exact route this year just to get a real handle, a better handle on, on where our cover crop acres were. And we thought we had uh, between 500,000 and a million acres. And as we got our transect results in, sure enough, we we're uh, well over a million acres of cover crops in Indiana. So that's a huge amount when when just back in 2005, 2007, that time frame, we would have been in, in more like a 20,000 acre range for the whole state. So it's really grown fast, especially in the last five years. And uh, we also cater in, in with NRCS and with the state programs, a lot of the cost share programs, we we tend to cater and, and uh, create a, a, an advantage to those people that are integrating a system. So if we can provide these, these risk management funding mechanisms, we want to steer those toward the system approach first so, so that that farmer can see the true benefit of this so that if the money runs out, they'll continue on with this system. That's really pretty amazing. I wonder if you could step back a little bit and think back on history a little bit. What kind of sparked all this? I mean, this is a real multifaceted approach. It isn't just saying, well, here's this new technique. Let's give it a shot. You had to train these farmers, set up these hubs, work with these other groups, you know, private businesses. I mean, what kind of was there some watershed event or something out there that really sparked an interest on the part of the NRCS here or or the Department of Ag or something? Or well, one thing we've had an advantage we've had in Indiana for a long time is we've had a very strong partnership between our federal, state, local agencies, and uh, so in the even in the you know early two thousands, we we were looking at energy packages, trying to cut energy costs on farms and things. And when you started looking at those, these cropping systems started making sense. And so that that sort of brought some of the partners together where they said, you know, it makes a lot of sense to to put an energy package together. And so we always had like state programs, federal programs, and county programs. It 
it happened at that time that it made most sense to work together on some of those. So we had some of those energy bundles, if you will, going uh, across our Indiana Conservation Partnership. But there came a point in the in the late 2000, about 2009, 2010, when a group of farmers got together and they said, look, this is... This is just too important. We're going to have to figure out what it's going to take to get, even bring the, the industry on board, bring bring a bunch of people, that all of the players on board. And uh, I will have to say it was farmer-driven. The, the, we had some farmer leaders that just took this by the reins and said, and they actually corralled our agency leadership, pulled them aside and said, here's what we think ought to be our priorities for Indiana. And you know what? Our leadership had the fortitude to see that these guys were were brilliant in 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 their thought process, and it did make sense for all of our agencies to join together and come. and And it's it's really it was a farmer driven thing. I will have to say. Ray Weil spoke a little bit yesterday and today about the experience in Chesapeake Bay, and they've had great results getting cover crops on, but. He seems to express a little bit of concern that there, there, it's because it was basically paying farmers to plant these cover crops, kind of a top-down approach. They aren't having these conversations about systems approaches and changing farming systems. And it seems like he he's really likes what he sees here in that that uh, you guys are the far, it is from the farmers. They're talking about not just how can I get a higher payment for this. Uh, but uh, whether there's a payment there or not, how is this going to benefit my farm in the long term? That seems to be a very important part of this. I think so. There's no question if you want something to happen very, very fast, pass a regulation. That is a very efficient way to make a thing happen. However, it stymies innovation and creativity. We're trying the approach of really ramping up education, information, technical exchange, so that the innovation is in the forefront. And, and innovation is ultimately how we're going to solve a lot of these problems. And, and uh, it's not going to be a single practice. It's not going to be a, a single shiny bullet, you know, or silver bullet that's going to make this happen. It's going to take real innovation. And so we, we can't take the chance on stymieing the innovation with just a flat regulation. And, and so... I'm not saying that regulation won't eventually come to some degree, but we're trying our very best to push the innovation part out in front. And uh, I think I think that's what the farmers prefer. I think ultimately it's what the regulators prefer. There's I haven't talked to very many people in EPA that are just dying to get to regulate something. They they really want this this uh, voluntary approach and this innovative approach to work. And they really are on board with our soil health initiatives and and, and improving soil health. And they they really like our conservation cropping system initiative as as a voluntary, proactive way to get some of this uh, environmental concerns taken care of. That's the funny thing, that anytime you can just open up dialogue between two seemingly adversarial people with different roles, then it's amazing how everybody learns from each other. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to be made aware of, of well, that can't work or, or maybe that could work and, and, uh, or that is a concern. I didn't know that was a concern. And uh, once you bring about that awareness, uh, most people really, really want to do the right thing. You have to understand that we all live here, so most of the time, if there's a if there's a logical path uh, to a better way, a better system, 
most people will take it. What's um, now that you guys are a few years down the road here? What's the biggest barrier? You were talking to a lot of farmers, a lot of people who are involved in this. What's the biggest barrier that they're running into right now? That's maybe not getting more than a million acres out there. I would have to say inconsistency of message. You know, the farmers are getting information from so many different sources, from so many different directions. And, you know, there's there's really good researchers in different sides of, of different things that get come up with a single bit of research that may be conflicting with another research. And so the farmers are having a hard time sorting all this out. So one of our number one priorities in all this is to bring consistency of message. And that's where we have all the, the researchers at the table. We bring industry to the table. We, we bring the farmers to the table and try our very best to say, have some continuity of message. Because if you're getting mixed messages from five different places telling you to do five completely different things, the first thing you're going to do is drop back and just keep doing what you've been doing. So so consistency of message is probably our single biggest roadblock. I, I think that's that's what we're trying our very hardest to do is, is get continuity. You can read more about the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative in the article King of the Cover Crops, which appears in the number 4 2015 edition of the Land Stewardship Letter. It's available at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.